Well, friends, I've got the wonderful privilege of inviting Luke to come and finish up our um, series in Ezra. I'm just going to pray for you. Um, Lord, we thank you for Luke. We thank you for his heart to clearly communicate your word and his heart for your people. And ask, Lord, would you speak so clearly through him by your spirit? We ask very simply, Lord, I pray you give us receptive hearts to, to hear your word as well. Amen. Amen. Let's read Exodus chapter 40 from verses 34. This Moses did according to all that the Lord commanded him, so he did. In the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle. He laid its bases and set up its frames and put in its poles and raised up its pillars. And he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He took the testimony and put it into the ark and put the poles on the ark and set the mercy seat above on the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veil of the screen and screened the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle, outside the veil, and arranged the bread on it before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle and set up the lamps before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the golden altar in the tent of meeting before the veil and burned fragrant incense on it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put in place the screen for the door of the tabernacle. He set up the altar of the burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and offered on it burnt offerings and the grain offering as the Lord had commanded Moses. He set up a basin between the tent of meeting and the altar. He put the water in it for washing with which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet when they went into the tent of meeting and when they approached the altar, they washed as the Lord commanded Moses. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate on the court. So Moses finished the work then. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Good morning, church. My name's Luke. I'm one of the elders of um, Life Church. And this week, as Phil said, we are coming to our final sermon as we've been looking at Ezra chapter 1 to 6. But this week, what we're going to see is God has always wanted a people for his own possession. He's always wanted a people for himself. And God has wanted to dwell among those people. God has wanted to be there with his people. And what we're going to see is that from the beginning to the end of Scripture, that has been the story. That is no more true than here in the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible. If we had more time, we'd go back to Genesis, but we've got to start here today. Because right in the book of Exodus, it is a story. You might know some of the story. You might know the film, The Prince of Egypt. It's one of my favourite films, so I won't lie. You might know the story of a people who were enslaved. They were nobodies. They were, they were an odd group of people whose ancestor wandered the Canaanite region. And yet God said, you will be my people. And miraculously, powerfully, he brings them out of slavery. Not just so they're free, but so they're his. He brings them out so they are his people. And so the story of the book of Exodus is a story of ups and downs. 
It's a story of God's desire to have a people for himself. And he, he saves them miraculously, but they're not sure the whole time. And there's a famous story when they turn their back on God and he said, you know what? I don't think we do want you, God. You're a bit too hard. We can't see that much. And so they, they worship an idol that they make. And this whole book, we're wondering, has the experiment failed? Will God really have a people for himself that he can call his own? And then we read in the final verses of Exodus, the passage we just read together. And what that passage is saying is that God said, build a tent. If you read the book of Exodus, you might have skipped over those chapters. God says, build a tent with great detail, many chapters. And he says, build a tent right in the middle of the campsite because I want to dwell with you. I want to be there with you. And so Exodus 40 is the, great, is the final piece of the puzzle of the book, is the great culmination of the book where God says, after all the will they, won't they? After all the what if, God says, yes, I will dwell with my people. The glory of God fills the tabernacle and they know God is with us. And so the tabernacle is a fundamental part of the life of the Israelites. This people of God in the Old Testament, the tabernacle isn't some place, it's where God dwells. It's the sign, it's the, the presence, it's the reality that God is in their midst, that they are the chosen people. They are God's people. And as the people over the next few hundred years enter into the promised land that God calls them, as they start to settle into permanent homes, so King David and then his son King Solomon says to God, surely God, we've got to build you a home. You can't just keep dwelling in tents. And so we move on to the next part of our story. When Solomon builds a temple, King Solomon builds a temple, and when he finishes it, this is what we read in 1 Kings chapter 8. Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the father's houses of the people of Israel, before King Solomon in Jerusalem, to bring up the Ark of the Covenant and the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. And all the men of Israel assembled King Solomon at the feast in the month of Ethanim, which is the seventh month. And all the elders of Israel came, and the priests took up the ark. That's one of the, that's the most important thing in the tabernacle. Took up the ark, and they brought up the ark of the Lord, the tent of meeting, and all the holy vessels that were in the tent. The priests and the Levites brought them up. And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who had assembled before him were with him before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they couldn't be counted or numbered. Then the priest brought the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house. That's the temple. The house is the temple. In the most holy place, underneath the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread out their wings over the place of the Ark, so that the cherubim overshadowed the Ark and its poles. And then here's a fun detail. And the poles were so long that the ends of the poles were seen in the holy place before the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from the outside. And they are still here to this day. That's a nice little detail, isn't it? There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone that Moses put there at Horeb when the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. Moses, uh, uh, sorry, Solomon finishes the temple and then this is what we read. And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. At God's request, Moses built a tabernacle and the glory of the Lord filled it. Then, at God's request, Solomon built a temple to replace the tabernacle. And when it was done, the glory of the Lord filled it. 
because God's presence would dwell with his people. The glory falls and God makes it clear. He is their God and they are his people. And so uh, we come to the book of Ezra. So if you've been with us the last few weeks, uh, you'll know that we've been uh, reading the book of Ezra, which is a, a historical narrative, part of the Bible, which is telling a story of the people of God, where we see that though uh, the Babylonians had kicked them out of the promised land, so this is a number of hundred years after Solomon, kicked them out of the promised land and destroyed their temple. Some, this is now some 70 years later, they've been allowed back into the promised land to build the temple, to rebuild the temple of their God. And so over the last um, five sermons, we've been looking at Ezra chapter 1 to 6, and we see stops and starts, we see opposition, we see, we see some kings are for it, some kings have to change their mind. But what we read in chapter 6 is the people have finally rebuilt the temple. They finally, it's not just a building, it's the place where God's presence dwells. So they finally rebuilt the temple. And as we read this, I want you to think of it a little bit like a murder mystery. Now, Tom mentioned his love of murder mysteries a couple of weeks ago. Um, I love uh, old Sherlock Holmes. Does anyone listen to the old Radio 4, the Carlton Hobbs um, Sherlock Holmes? No, is that just me? You guys are missing out. Yes, okay. They're brilliant. I love an old murder mystery. Um, and at the second or the third time, you can start to pick up, can't you, in the scenes when you realise, oh, wait, there was something missing all along. Maybe the car wasn't in the drive. Maybe a book was missing. Maybe a person wasn't where they should have been. And so as you look again and again, you, you start to notice, wait, if my eyes were opened, I could have seen something was missing. And so we've just read about the tabernacle and Solomon's temple. And so now we read together Ezra chapter 6, verse 13 to 18, with our Hercule Poirot moustaches ready to be twirled. Then according to the words sent by Darius the king, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar, Bozanai, and their associates did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo. They finished building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house, the temple, this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar, in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. And the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of God with joy. They offered at the dedication of this house of God 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering of all Israel, 12 male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. And they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their divisions for the service of God at Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. What a moment of celebration. What an exciting time. Solomon's temple was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian emperor. But now the temple has finally been rebuilt. But something's missing. Where's the glory? Where's the glory? Because when Moses finished the tabernacle, the glory fell. When Solomon built the temple, the glory fell. But now the returned exiles rebuild the temple and yet... In the next few verses, 
There's a bit more of chapter 6 we, we won't read today, but they joyfully celebrate Passover, but the glory doesn't fall there either. And as we start chapter 7, what we realize, if you look at the dates of the chapters, chapter 7 verse 1 is 60 years after the end of chapter 6. The temple is finished, but the glory never fell. Now, I don't know how you found English at school, but I remember my English um, literature teacher saying to me, um, oh, you know, Shakespeare, he, he used seven syllables and then two syllables because um, his friend lived at number 72 and it was a profound point he was making. And you think, if I'm honest with you, I think you're reading too much into that. I think it's probably just nice poetry. And you might be thinking, Luke, you're reading too much into that. Just because it doesn't mention the glory, it doesn't mean it wasn't there. But the silence is meant to be deafening. The prophets knew it. Ezekiel, who prophesied before this time, he prophesied at the start of the exile. He said, yes, the temple's been destroyed. And the glory, he says, the glory of the Lord has left the temple. But he prophesied a day coming when there'll be a greater temple. And he said, the glory of the Lord will return. Haggai, who was mentioned in this passage, who prophesied as they were rebuilding the temple, he says, very famously in chapter two, he says, I will fill the house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. And then in verse 9, he says, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former glory. So this is someone who is prophesying as the temple was being rebuilt. He says, no, it will be greater. The glory will be greater. But the question then for remains, where's the glory? And does it mean that God doesn't dwell with his people anymore? This is the tension of Ezra and Nehemiah. At the, we've been reading the first six chapters of Ezra, but it's it's the tension that you see throughout this book and the next. Hope fulfilled? But is it really? The Israelites return from exile, but the Persian Empire is still ruling. The temple's rebuilt, but the glory never fell. And we're meant to live with a sense of tension as we read these these books. And we're meant to say to ourselves, Lord, is this all there is? (laughs) Lord, is this really what the people returning to you, the promises being fulfilled of the prophecies, is this really what it's meant to look like? Just as the original readers would have been feeling this, we are meant to feel it too. And there's a reason, because the tension of the book of Ezra is meant to say there is something to come. There's something greater. The tension of the book of Ezra is meant to point us to Jesus. And so we look to Jesus. Now, it's worth pointing out, even in the times of Moses and Solomon, these times of the great glory falling on the temple, on the tabernacle, the presence of God, God being in the middle of the people, came with some restrictions. The tabernacle was right at the centre of the campsite. It's quite fun, actually, if you like structure. There's, there's chapters dedicated to where everyone was meant to camp, so it was all perfectly surrounding the tabernacle. The temple was built in the capital city in Jerusalem, so it was right in the heart of their civilization. And yet, even then, there were restrictions. The high priest could go into the most holy place, but only once a year. And the average Jew couldn't even step foot inside of the building. And so as we read the prophets, Ezekiel, Haggai, Haggai and others, who say actually it will be greater, the next temple will be greater, we look to Jesus and we realise what he achieved isn't a rebuilding of the temple. There's something far greater going on. 
Phil mentioned um, a few weeks ago when he was uh, looking at Ezra, I think it was chapter 3, wasn't it? The, the weeping. So the old men weep, the young people celebrate the foundation being laid. He, he mentioned a beautiful thing that Jesus said. Jesus said, someone greater than the temple is here. Something greater than the temple, referring to himself. And what we see in Jesus' death is quite amazing, how it speaks to the age of the temple being over. Because when Jesus hung on a cross when his body was physically, literally broken, as he, as he breathed his last breath, we read actually the curtain of the temple was torn in two. That same temple that was built in Ezra chapter six, that's the temple that Jesus would have known. That temple, as Jesus breathed his last breath on the cross, the curtain that separated the holiest of holies from the rest of the people was ripped in two. You see, when Jesus died, the era of the temple was over. But the era of God truly dwelling with his people had only just begun. Because God has always wanted a people for his possession. He has always wanted to dwell in the midst of his people. But when Christ came, there was no longer a temple system we had to mediate through. When Christ's body was broken, we could come straight to the Father. There's beautiful verses throughout the New Testament, but think of Hebrews chapter four. It says we can boldly come to the throne room of God, to the throne of grace. Where is the throne of grace? That's talking about the Holy of Holies in the temple. That's what the author's doing there. He's saying because of Jesus, we step right into the place that only the high priest could go into, the place where the glory of God dwelt. Because of Christ, we are the people that God is among. God was still committed to dwelling with his people. But in Jesus, his people could now come directly to him. The distance was gone. Jesus had made a way for God to dwell with his people like never before. But something was still missing. Moses built the tabernacle. Solomon built the temple. And six or seven weeks after Jesus was resurrected... Christ had ascended to the Father's right hand. He was dead no more. He was raised to life and he ascended to the Father's right hand. And his followers, though they can no longer see him physically with their eyes, they gathered together to pray. Men and women who have seen the resurrected Christ were in a room praying together. At a time in the Jewish calendar called the Feast of Weeks, a very important feast. You might know it from its Greek name, Pentecost. And they gathered together. And this is what we read in Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And and divided tongues as a fire appeared on them and rested on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. The ascended Christ had poured out his spirit. And what the people in Ezra chapter 6 had been waiting for finally happened. Christ had died. The era of temple was over, but it was here at Pentecost where the glory fell. It was here at Pentecost where the church age began because Jesus said, I will fill you with my Holy Spirit. And that is what he did. God's personal presence, God himself, the Holy Spirit was now with his people. And the prophets could say that the latter glory was greater than the former glory because the glory now didn't dwell in a building. 
The glory didn't fill a building. It filled God's people. The presence of God no longer lives in buildings. The presence of God doesn't fill the TDA. God doesn't need a chapel or a cathedral. Notice the sound filled the house. The spirit filled the people. God now dwells with us. If you are someone who has given your life to Jesus, you, as Peter says, are part of the temple of God where his Holy Spirit dwells because God has always wanted a people for his own possession and he has always wanted to live among them. And now he does. For those of us who have given ourselves to Jesus, we are that temple. Christ is our cornerstone. We are where God's spirit dwells. And so, I mean, that means a hundred things. That means a million things. And if you're at our big weekend, not weekend, big day away um, in a few weeks, on September the 30th, if um, you're here in November, when we're going to be preaching on the Holy Spirit for a number of weeks, we'll start to unpack and explore the profound privilege of being the people of the Spirit of God. We'll start to unpack things like when we know that we are God's people, our hearts cry out, Abba, Father because we have total assurance of our relationship with him. We say, we say, our Father, it's a beautiful assurance we give. But to be slightly audacious, we're going to move on. Because we could talk about the spirit being uh, among his people in this age for the rest, I mean, probably for the rest of eternity. And we are going to spend lots of time doing that for the rest of term. But what I want to do now is move on in the story. Because Christ began something at the cross and resurrection that he would bring to completion. And the New Testament says the spirit being poured out is a first fruit. It's a foretaste. It's a deposit of the thing that will be to come. And so as we get to the end of the history of Scripture, as we go to history that is in our future, we find Revelation 21 and we read what Christ will one day fully accomplish what, his, what the cross has accomplished, but will one day will fully come about. And this is what we read in Revelation 21. You thought the kids were doing a sweep of the Bible. This is like the Bible in one day, but we're going to do Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven for God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God's. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. This is what Christ has accomplished, which one day will come about. This is what heaven feels like. This, <laughs> Revelation 21, we get a taste of it now, but this is what heaven sounds like. This is the thing we are looking ahead to. And so, while we have an amazing foretaste of the spirit now, but still in a world of brokenness and fallenness, this, when the first heaven and first earth pass away, when newness of creation comes in, when the Father, Son and Spirit will truly dwell with his people, this is what we look forward to. This is the day that as believers we wait for in great expectation and hope. 
It says, actually, just if, if you're interested in nerdy little details, it says, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Dwelling place is literally tabernacle. The tabernacle of God is... What he was doing with Moses was pointing ahead to this day where God would dwell with his people with no barrier, with no separation, with no taste of what it would be like, but the fullness of what it will be like. And what will it be like? Well, we can't imagine. But John helps us. John, who wrote Revelation, he helps us. Because when God dwells with us as his people in fullness, there'll be an intimacy with him that we, we, we can't begin to describe apart from him with a few words. It will be like a bride with her husband. We, the church, the people of God, filling the new Jerusalem as the new Jerusalem, we will be with Christ like a bride and her husband because Christ gave himself for us. He laid down his life for us. He has committed himself with a covenant that cannot be broken because it was made in his blood to forever love us with a zeal and a passion that would consume us if it wasn't so pure. That's what we look forward to, an intimacy with God. That is just, it, we can barely describe it in words. And where truly the thing that the whole Bible has been longing for, we get to say he is our God. It's not just God. He is. He's our God. That's what the voice says. Behold, he will be their God. The havoc of evil, the shadow of past mistakes, the wrongs done to us and the pieces of broken relationships in this life, all the scars of sin that separated us from him will be healed in that day. Creation will be renewed in that day. True life will be experienced in fullness in that day. Every tear will be wiped away. Death will be no more. And we will truly be his. We can keep reading Revelation 21, but we'll skip over a bit of it, otherwise we'll be here all morning. But let's pick up in verse 22, because there's a few more beautiful things. I just want us to help try and picture what that will be like when God will be with us without limit. Verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord, the, Almighty, the Lord God Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need for sun or moon to shine in it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. There's no need for temple. And the glory is there in a way that is so profound that whatever that means, there won't be need for sun or moon. And it carries on. By the light, by this light, will, will the nations walk. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night. They will bring into it the glory and the honour of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. God will dwell with his people. Those who are in Christ, God will dwell with them, but not in a temple but in a way so profound that he'll be with us without limit. He'll be with us without any barrier. Yes, now we have a foretaste in the Holy Spirit poured out, but then completely. And John gives us some pictures to imagine what it's like. I don't know if some of you do this. My mum would always do this. When we, when we booked a holiday, if it's Airbnb or something, you, you flick through the photos again and again because you want to imagine what, what will it be like to be there? What, what kind of things does the, the apartment or the house or the hotel have? What, what walks might we, might we go on? What restaurants are nearby? 
And though we can't imagine what it would be look like, what it will look like to be with God with no limits, John gives us a few little photos, a few tasters of what it will be. He says profound things. It will be constant daytime. Not like in the north of Norway, where everyone's constantly sleep-deprived. But there'll be no daytime. There'll be no night. And it'll be constant daytime. And the light of the glory of the Lord through the lamp of the Lamb will shine. What does that mean? It means the bitter cold of the night will never take the life of a vulnerable person sleeping rough again. It means the darkness which spreads fear in people's hearts and is the accomplice of crime will no more have power. John says nations will walk by the light of God, this glory of God, because the the glory of God and and the Lamb will shine. And it says nations will walk by this light because there will be no more corrupt governments. There'll be no more poor decision-making. There'll be no more cost of living crisis where families are struggling to work out what it means to feed their kids tomorrow. There'll be no more aid that is meant for people who are dying, being siphoned off into other people's pockets. And it says the nations will bring their glory and honour to him. What would it look like to dwell with God? It would look like every ethnicity and people group bringing their unique and beautiful contribution to the eternal dance of worship of our creator and saviour. And this one final detail I'll pick out that I love. The gates will always be open. It says the gates will be open by day and there'll be no night. The gates will always be open. That is a beautiful thing to say because not one of God's people will be shut out or forgotten again. Gone will be the days where men and women live in loneliness. Gone will be the days where backs are turned on vulnerable children. Gone will be the days where people fleeing their homes from war die at sea because nations close their borders. And gone will be the days of war. Because when there is no enemy, there's no need to close the gates. And in that day, the great enemy, death, will have been defeated. Satan will have been dealt with. And there'll be no need to close the gates. Because peace will reign in all of creation, in new creation. My dear friends, God has always wanted a people for himself. He's always wanted a people where he could dwell in the midst of them. And if you are a follower of Jesus, you have the privilege of tasting in an incredible way what that is to have the Holy Spirit poured out on us. Yes, individually, but more profoundly as a people that we are the dwelling place of God. We as God's people are his dwelling place. But even that is a taste of the eternal Dwelling, where God will dwell with man. And so as we end, as we think of those things, we take communion. Because it is by Christ's body broken for us that the curtain was ripped in two. It was by Christ's body broken for us that he ushered in the new age where the spirit could be poured out and we could be with his we could be with him his people with him and as Christ's body was broken he looked forward to the day through his resurrection where he would be the first among many and we would dwell with our god forever if the band want to jump up uh, we're going to take communion now so those of you um, who follow Jesus this is a meal that we um, take together this is something that Jesus asked us to do. Uh, and just before Jesus himself was crucified, he had a meal, a very normal meal with his disciples. And he said, this bread is like my body, 
Eat it now. Do it in remembrance of my death. I'm paraphrasing, but that's what he essentially said. He said, do this in remembrance of the death that I'm about to die. And then he prayed. And then he said to them, and drink this wine. This is the blood of the new covenant. The promises that I have wrought by my death. The promises that one day this will come to completion. And beautifully, he says, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine again until we celebrate together when the kingdom comes. So let's take this bread. Let's drink this wine. And let's worship Christ together. Amen.